counseled with each other for quite some time before they returned and bestowed upon Silver a small piece of paper cut into a circle. It was covered with black ash from charred wood on one side, and on the other side it bore one word, deposed. Silver stared down at his five shipmates and remarked that the page the spot had been drawn upon was a piece of the Bible, and that by cutting the holy scripture to create a pirate's death sentence, they had likely cursed themselves all to hang. Changing the subject, the man who had given Silver the spot quickly changed the topic back to the matter at hand. Silver reminded the pirates that according to the rules, while they had the right to, to overthrow him, they had to name their complaints and give him the opportunity to address them first. Their first grievance was that Long John had made a hash of the crews. Second, that he had too easily allowed the captain's men to negotiate their safe retreat from the old fort. Since the men wanted to leave the fort anyways, the pirates thought it was very suspicious to give them what they wanted with no trouble, even if it meant the badly injured captain wanting to leave a secure position. Very suspicious indeed. Thirdly, they did not attack the captain's men, not now nor during their retreat when they were most vulnerable. And fourth, the boy. What was with the special treatment that Jim Hawkins always seemed to enjoy? Silver answered the first that as for making a hash of the voyage, if they had followed his plan in the first place, they would not have mutinied until the gold was already safely aboard the ship and they would all be safely on their way. The men who had pushed the crew to mutiny early were the same men who were vying for his position as captain now. If they needed to blame someone for ruining the plans, it could be hardly be blamed on the one person who wanted to stick to those plans in the first place. They would all be alive and brimming with treasure if they had not forced his hand. Jim could tell the men were shaken by this first speech, and a few of them were already rethinking turning on the one-legged man. As for the boy, he was simply a hostage, and a hostage would come in very handy for the crew because, as for numbers two and three, Long John had negotiated with Dr. Livesey and found out that they sh that should the Hispaniola be too long on her journey, a rescue consort was going to come after them since they had both a squire and a magistrate on board. When this rescue party came, having an innocent boy as a hostage may come in handy. During this same conversation with Dr. Livesey, Silver had negotiated a safe departure for the captain's men in exchange for the original treasure map, which Silver now passed around the crowd of furious ruffians. The members of the crew who had sailed with Captain Flint inspected it carefully and recognized the map to be written in their former captain's hand. It was the very same map that Jim had taken from Billy Bones' sea chest. Long John asked whether or not having the location of 700,000 pounds of gold and silver was worth the release of three exhausted men and their helpless captain. The money should, at least, be enough to ease the pain of losing the satisfaction of killing them. Another thing they gained in this exchange was the use of the doctor to treat their illness, since they had all been swallowed by a terrible fever since they came upon the island. Overall, Silver thought that his men had gotten the better end of the deal, and that if his men had had the pleasure of killing the doctor, most of them would have been carried away by the fever by now. Silver argued that they had, they had lost the ship, but he had won the treasure, so who was a better man to be captain? The men shouted, Long John Silver, barbecue for captain, barbecue forever! The men were awakened in the morning by Dr. Livesey himself, calling to the pirates and climbing the hill. He came with medical supplies, and Long John exclaimed that they had a surprise for him, a new guest. The doctor gasped, not Jim. The doctor was nearly speechless to hear that Jim was still alive, but 
He went from patient to patient, treating them and speaking to them as though they were naughty little children instead of evil men. He stated openly that he considered himself a prison doctor and that he was determined not to lose a man for the gallows. He diagnosed another man or two with fever or malaria. He gave them medicine and scolded Silver for camping the men in the swamp where the damp air would make them all sick. Remember, listeners, that this is before germ theory, so this is back in a time period where they thought that the swampy, stinky air, the damp night air especially, what they called miasma, was what carried malaria from person to person. You even see down here in the south, people with big farms would often leave those farms and move towards the coastline where there were fewer mosquitoes in the summer because they thought that those hot summer months carried the miasma or the bad air with them. It wasn't until later that we realized that this was also the height of mosquito season and the mosquitoes were what was carrying the malaria and not the, the damp air. Um, let's see. Yeah, here we are. After he had done his duty, the good doctor requested that he be allowed to speak to Jim. Long John made him swear not to attempt to escape, and then he would allow them to speak over the wall of the fort. Jim inside the fort, and Dr. Livesey outside. It was clear, even to Jim, that Silver was trying to placate both sides, and it was beginning to become a dangerous game with his men on this on edge. Long John sat just out of earshot where he could see Jim and be sure he, that he didn't escape. Silver explained to the doctor that his success wasn't only a matter of his own life now, but of Jim's as well. He had saved the boy's life, but lost his position as captain for it. He just asked that when they returned to England and the doctor remembered his bad deeds, that he remember the good as well. The doctor began a grave speech about how Jim would reap what he sowed, that he deserved everything he got for betraying and abandoning them, and Jim, despite being old to, too old to do so, began to weep. He told the doctor the whole story of what had happened aboard the Hispaniola and his fight with, with Israel hands. The doctor changed his tone immediately, recognizing that the boy had saved them once again, and since he could not bear to see Jim in danger, he encouraged him to jump over the fort wall, and together they would flee to the squire and the captain. As much as Jim wanted to, he reminded the doctor that he had given his word not to ad- attempt an escape. His only fear was that if the pirates decided to torture him, he might give up the location of the ship. The doctor assured Jim that he had saved their lives far too many times for the captain's crew to allow him to die here. Jim had also saved Ben Gunn, which the doctor deemed the best thing Jim would ever do if he lived to be 90. Here the doctor called Silver in closer, as the topic of Ben Gunn had reminded him of something. As the fate of the pirate and the boy were indeed bound together, the doctor warned Long John that it might not be a good idea to be too hasty about hunting for the treasure. John correctly pointed out that the desire for treasure was the only thing keeping the men in check, so he had to go after it. The doctor wouldn't say what was wrong exactly, only that it wasn't his secret to keep, but that Silver should be prepared for disaster when they came upon the appointed location of the treasure. The doctor told Silver to keep Jim close to him, and said that if he could keep the boy safe, when they returned to London, the doctor would do everything he could, short of perjury, to save the pirate. When they were alone, Long John admitted that he had seen the doctor attempt to get Jim to flee, and he thanked him for staying, as it likely saved Long John's life. It seemed they would all sink or swim together. Jim and the pirates had a massive breakfast, all of which came from the ship's own stock. Then they went forth in the searing heat, sick and injured alike. As they walked, they discussed the chart. 
The X on the chart may have marked where the treasure was, but it was much too large to be a very specific location, but rather a large, broad area where the gold might be. If, in, oh, sorry, in order to be more detailed, Flint had marked in his own hands a few lines of direction that stated near where the X was marked, they were to look for the tallest tree and go so many paces east-northeast. They climbed higher and higher in elevation, and the higher they got out of the malaria-infused swamps and up to the lovely clearings of azaleas and fragrant nutmegs. Silver and Jim, or Silver had Jim bound with a rope, which he held in his teeth as he struggled to hike with his crutch. The men were so absorbed by the loveliness of the area that it was jarring when one of them screamed from the tree line. What he found would turn the cheery, carefree hike back to a somber dance with danger that they had been living in for the last few days. A skeleton, one of Flint's old crew, who had gone ashore with him to bury his treasure. With his body stretched into a straight line, hands together above his head like a diver, pointing due east in the direction of the treasure. The unnatural position of the corpse and the vines that now nearly consumed it unnerved everyone but Silver, and the man began rumbling about how surely they were cursed because of their desecration of the Bible. Long John commented ominously about Flint's party had been about six men, and they were also a party of six, but only Flint had returned to his ship. They reminisced about the terrifying captain and his last words, screaming for rum and singing fifteen men. Silver told them all to stow their superstition, as Flint was dead, and while he did seem like the haunting type, they couldn't be hurt by a ghost. But the whole treasure hunt had become so morose that to get themselves together, the rest of the sick and wounded took a small break. They ate in cold silence, which made it even easier to hear the voice bouncing through the wind. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. The color drained from the men's faces. Then the same voice wailed over the air, calling for Darby McGraw to bring him more rum. One pirate clung to the remains of the ruined Bible. Silver huffed. No one on the, this island had ever heard of Darby McGraw except for them, and he would be hanged if he were to lose 700,000 pounds for being a coward. He pricked up his ears as the men cowered and trembled. He pointed out that it wasn't so very like Flint's voice, even if they were his words. They were letting their fear and superstition take over their minds. Ben Gunn, Silver concluded. The voice was Ben Gunn, and no one on earth was frightened of Ben Gunn. So, the pirates got the spring in their, back in their step and continued on their way. The breathtaking heat was not enough to dampen their spirits as they came upon a tree that was remarkably taller than the rest, standing like a tent pole over the canopy. The sight of it, and the thought of treasure, the treasure it might hide, thrust the men into a kind of frenzy. Silver dragged Jim behind him in his eagerness, glaring at him in a violent rage when he couldn't keep up. All thought of protecting the boy, evading the noose, and saving his own life were lost in his desire for gold. Jim, for his part, however, could only think of how this beautiful, peaceful place had once been the site of Flint's betrayal of his six shipmates. To the boy, the sickness of the murder seemed to linger in the air. Coming up over a hill, there was a deep trench in the earth containing nothing but empty packing cases and a broken pickaxe. Jim watched the change in Silver's face as his plan of action changed before the pirates even had time to register the full meaning of the missing treasure. He handed Jim a pistol and began to quietly edge away while the pirates were distracted. 
His countenance had turned friendly and kind to the boy once again, and the constant, rapid changes in the older man had begun to turn Jim's stomach with complete disgust. He could not help but whisper, So, you've changed sides again? Even as they were trying to hide away and escape notice, Silver didn't get a chance to answer as the pirates leapt into the pit and found nothing of value but a single coin. Furious, they turned on their captain yet again, accusing him of knowing the treasure was gone all along, and they began to fumble out of the pit on the other side, so that it was stood like a trench between them. George Mary was about to lead a charge against Jim and Long John when three shots rang out from the nutmeg trees as Dr. Livesey, Squire Trelawney, and Ben Gunn emerged with smoking muskets. Long John shot and injured George Mary, and the other three pirates fled into the woods as the captain's crew began to make for the ship. On the way, Ben Gunn revealed that until three months ago, he had spent nearly his entire three years on the island moving the treasure from its burial place to a cave where he had taken shelter. This made Flint's treasure map useless, which was why the doctor had been willing to part with it in his negotiations with Long John. This all meant to keep the pirates out of their hair while the malaria and the island itself had about taken the fight out of them. He had given up some of the ship's supplies since Ben had salted enough meat for them to restock the ship. The captain's party had planned on taking the ship and leaving while the pirates haunted in the wrong direction for the treasure. When the doctor found out that the pirates had the boy quite against his will, the plans all changed. Finding out that Jim was alive and still loyal drove the men to hustle to rescue the poor hostage. Ben Gunn was the swiftest, so he went ahead to stall the pirates using their own superstition, while the doctor and the squire followed behind, while Gray guarded the captain. Long John pointed out that the doctor would have let him be slaughtered by his own crew if he hadn't had Jim with him, and the doctor gleefully agreed. The men found that the tide had lifted the Hispaniola mostly undamaged in the harbor, and Ben Gray went aboard to guard her and to keep her from sailing off while the men spent the next several days filling the ship with as much treasure and supplies as they needed. When Jim saw the mountain of treasure, it brought him no joy. He could only think of the 17 lives that had been lost during his journey to find it. He thought of the lives of Flint's crew that had been lost and all of the many that would have been killed when Flint's crew had stolen the treasure from its original owners in the first place. It was far too much treasure for the schooner to hold, yet far too little to be worth the bloodshed it had cost, especially here in the stone cave where it had no value at all. The three remaining pirates kept their biz or sorry, kept their business or kept their business, meaning they kept to themselves, sorry, as the money was packed up and carried onto the ship. Gold and silver bars, jewels, and coins from every country that Jim had ever seen lay in heaps and piles and mountains like autumn leaves, and the men spent three whole days working until their bodies ached, moving it all into the ship. Silver behaved himself and bore every insult of the captain's crew heaped on him cheerfully. It seemed he was just as happy to have survived so far, though it was hard to tell the man's true feelings because he was so changeable. The men left supplies and food on the island before they deserted the remaining three pirates. They flew the Union Jack and set sail. The men felt terrible for leaving the three men to their fate, but taking them would only be bringing to them to the gallows, and the crew could not risk another mutiny. They were very short-staffed, and it took a massive effort for them to make their way to a South American port. The men were thrilled to see cheerful, healthy human faces again, and they ate and resupplied and got the crew they needed. 
While they had been ashore eating tropical fruit and enjoying the company of decent people, Long John had stolen a bag of gold and escaped, with poor Ben Gunn too terrified to stop him. Either way, the men were happy to be rid of him. After they returned to England, Captain Smollett retired with his share of the treasure, which is little wonder, it sounds like he got injured pretty badly. Gray married and started a family. The man began to pursue his career in earnest and became a captain in his own right. Ben Gunn spent or lost his share of treasure in a mere 19 days and was begging again on day 20. And Long John was never heard from again. There was plenty of treasure still left on Treasure Island, but no force on earth could ever persuade Jim Hawkins to return. His nightmares of his time spent there would haunt him for the rest of his life. I have heard lots of different versions of this story thousands of times, and I'm sure you have too. So I was surprised to see the story end on a lot more somber of a note than I expected it to be. We live in a very comfortable, pampered society that loves to squawk on and on about our trauma, but far from the celebratory nature of most movie versions of the story, the end of this book seems to leave Jim Hawkins genuinely traumatized in a way that few people living today could actually imagine. He survived weeks of kill-or-be-killed stakes and high adrenaline that hinged on his decisions as a very young boy. He had to take men's lives in order to avoid his own being taken, and he had to do so at an early age, when he had largely been sheltered from the world prior to his introduction to Billy Bones. While it's not exactly the happy ending fans of Muppet Treasure Island may have come to expect, I think Stevenson's depiction of lingering effects of having to grow up so quickly in such a violent way would have. One point that I didn't focus on in my retelling, that Stevenson emphasized numerous times in the story, was how wasteful the pirates are about every resource they can get their hands on. Jim notes that while Captain Smollett's team are in the fort, they cut lots of firewood but keep their campfire small. They only eat what they need, attempting to help their supplies stretch to last the entire journey. The pirates have more of an eat, drink, and be merry mentality. They make massive bonfires and eat as much as they possibly can, then burn any extra food they may have. Even Long John states that he's slow to start the mutiny because he knows that as soon as the captain's out of the way, the men will eat and drink their way through their stores far too fast. Their laziness is also reflected in their careers, which center around stealing the possessions of others rather than putting in the work to earn possessions of their own. In the classic version of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean ride, the pirates were meant to represent the seven deadly sins, and we see lots of the same here in Stevenson's story, with a particular emphasis on sloth, gluttony, greed, and envy. While Disney seems to have lost track of the fact that the pirates were and are the bad guys, and therefore they try to make them represent more modern values, it kind of undercuts those values by giving them to the attraction's villains. So it's almost like Disney kind of underhandedly saying that by giving what they deem to be virtues to the bad guys, they're kind of saying that those aren't really virtues in the first place, though I doubt that Disney is self-aware enough to realize this. The seven deadly sins, by their very nature, are meant to be corruptions of people's souls because of one, one thing that somebody overindulges or abuses their most base desires. For example, gluttony is a corruption of the human survival instinct to eat food. Greed is a corruption of the desire for the security that comes with the accumulation of worldly goods. Since pirates are the villains in both mythology and reality, it makes sense for both the author and early Disney to use them to represent the particular sins that tend to be a side product of overindulgence. On the more fun note, in J.M. Barrie's P. 
Peter and Wendy, he actually makes a reference to Treasure Island by stating that Captain Hook was the only man that Barbecue was ever afraid of, Barbecue being a common nickname that the other members of Captain Flint's crew gave to Long John Silver. Why he needed this nickname, I'm sure I don't know, because Long John Silver is already the piratiest pirate named to ever pirate. This is added to by the fear factor surrounding Captain Hook, since Silver famously inspires fear in all of the other pirates in his book, including his own captain. Captain Flint's treasure is stated a few times to be worth about 700,000 British pounds. This story was written to take place between 1760 and 1770, so if we hop in the middle there about 1765, 700 British pounds would have the purchasing power of about 158,238,448 pounds today. For those of us across the pond here in America, this would be about 190,212,108 US dollars today. Even if they only managed to load half of the treasure onto the Hispaniola, after all, Jim openly says they were unable to take all of it, this is a pretty tidy sum to split between half a dozen survivors. As I mentioned in the first episode of this story, one of the most important themes of Treasure Island is that of Jim Hawkins seeking a father-slash-mentor figure after the loss of his own father due to illness, as he attempts to grow up and figure out what kind of man he wants to become himself. I can see why this subject would be sitting heavily on Stevenson's mind, as he dedicated the story to his own stepson. He and his wife fell in love at first sight, and this understandably caused the future Mrs. Stevenson's already estranged marriage to dissolve. I'm sure there were many hard feelings involved. Mrs. Stevenson was nearly a decade older than Robert Lewis, so it was an unconventional union that started on the most sour note that it possibly could. Knowing this, it's perfectly understandable if Mrs. Stevenson's sons were a bit confused about this strange Scottish man that their mother became involved with while their parents were living on opposite sides of America. And it must have made him them feel even more out of place when then the whole family packed up and moved to the UK. The strange family seemed to get along well, however, and spent the rest of Stevenson's life together. Now. Well, that's the end of my analysis of Treasure Island. I do have one last big final announcement for those of you who are still listening. I'm I'm very, very excited about this. I hope you will be too. If you're a long-term listener of the show, you know that my favorite episodes of the podcast are the ones that explore local stories and folklore. I've been working on a new project to get these stories out there for a while, and unfortunately, Anchor and Spotify have both come together and made an announcement that they will no longer be sponsoring all of the podcasts that they host on their platform, choosing instead to only sponsor those with a very large listenership. From a business standpoint, this makes sense, and I absolutely don't hold it against them, but it kind of stinks for smaller independent shows like myself. It's a bummer. But it really could not have come at a better time for me, as weird as that sounds since I've been working on a project of my own that I'm finally ready to announce. Introducing Southern Fried Tour Guide. From now on, I, your humble hostess, will be giving walking tours around the historic and French Quarter districts here in Charleston. On this tour, I'll point out several locations in the city that have an interesting story connected to them and show you the places where history comes to life. I call this tour my Pirates and Scalawags tour, (laughs) my husband calls it my Sassy Ladies tour, and both fit. A few of these stories have been featured here on the show, but most of them are exclusive to the tour, so if you're visiting Charleston and would love to hear a true story about historic Charleston, 
please pop over to southernfriedtourguide.com and book a tour. What will happen to Southern Fried Storytime? I'll still be doing my weekly show, probably with more episodes on local history and legends, and starting at the end of this month, there will no longer be any ads as Spotify and Anchor have given me about 30 days and then they're removing my sponsorship from them. So if there are any ads in the episode after 30 days from today, they were not put there by me. Just just putting that out there. Spotify and Anchor may still try to cross-sell to you, but it is not my doing anymore. <laughs> I'm extremely excited to get to share my stories with people one-on-one and finally make what I love into what I do. Ever since my move down south, I've enjoyed digging deeper and deeper into the strange blend of legend and history that this place is steeped in, and I've often been told that I would make an excellent tour guide by friends and family members who have visited us down here. I've decided to take your advice, and I'm truly hoping you will all be happy for me, and that if you're ever in the area, I can share this fun new journey with you. Thank you for tuning in today, and have a beautiful, beautiful weekend.